Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful truth that is, that your grace is greater than all our sin. I pray, God, that we would not take that wonderful grace for granted, nor would we take your word for granted. Each time we hear it, God, we want to receive it as a gift of your truth and your love toward us and the means by which we can be transformed and renewed and encouraged and convicted and be brought further into conformity with our precious, dear, gracious Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, God, for everyone that you've brought to our service today once again. I pray your word would be a blessing to them and all those who are listening online as well. We lift this time up to you now, God, praying that you'd be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to God's word, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the pew in front of you. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're at and where we've been at. We've been studying the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin the past few weeks, the curses that were put on Satan and the woman and the man. And their disobedience to God brought corruption into the world. This is the current part of our series, Corruption, Genesis 3. And this introduced sin into the human race. The whole beautiful creation of God was corrupted and in a state of corruption from that time. We saw last week that the ground itself is cursed by God. Weeds and thorns and thistles... Have you ever noticed you don't have to do anything whatsoever to make weeds grow in your front yard or your backyard or your or the cracks in your driveway? They just grow. With that, man's work is toilsome. It's a struggle just to survive. There's pain. There's weariness. There's sweat. And then there's all those other further devastating consequences of sin that mankind and all of us have to face. And I mentioned some of these when I I began the corruption series, but um, these woes of all sorts that make human life very difficult outside of the Garden of Eden. And there's there's harmful germs and viruses, some that we're even dealing with today, disease, decay, disasters of all kinds, all stem from the divine curse, the effects of sin. There's calamity, there's sorrow, there's strife, there's other difficulties which are part of the sin-stained and sin-fallen world. There's insects. If anyone, has anyone noticed, um, there's just so many mosquitoes lately out there. I don't know if anybody enjoys mosquitoes like I do. But um, fleas, ticks, all those wonderful critters that have overstepped their original beneficial purposes, and now they're annoying pests, right? And beyond annoying, even harmful, sometimes even dangerous. Nature itself often becomes destructive under God's sovereign power. Earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, you've read the news, you know what's going on in the world. All of these things, droughts, famines, other natural disasters. Romans 8.22 says, all creation groans and labors with birth pangs. It's the creation itself waiting for the consummation 
of God's redemptive work in his story. To quote Christian author R.W. Mackey in this helpful book called What Happened in the Garden, he writes, quote, To say that the world is marred by sin is not to say that creation is completely bad or totally devoid of any value. God pronounced his creation, what? Good. And the inherent, inherent goodness remains. Sin, however, infected that goodness in a way that adds toil, frustration, misery, pain, weariness, and eventually death to what have otherwise been perfectly good as pronounced by God and subsequently life-giving, end quote. So God pronounced his punishment upon woman and man. And as I've said, the main curse, the primary part of the curse was man's separation from God, broken fellowship with the creator, which would last forever if God himself did not intervene. We're going to look more at that today, but with God's chastisement, his discipline of mankind also comes much grace And we had Philip read Hebrews 12 for a reason, right? Father disciplines, even scourges the son, daughters, children whom he loves. And um, Donald Barnhouse, the old preacher, tells the story of Sir Edward Byrne Jones, who was a prominent 19th century English artist, painter. And he went to his daughter's home for tea one day. And during the tea... His little granddaughter misbehaved, so her mother made her stand in the corner with her face to the wall. Sir Edward did not interfere in his granddaughter's discipline. But the next day, he arrived at their house with his paints, and he went to the wall where the little girl had been forced to stand and proceeded to paint a number of pictures that would delight a child. A kitten chasing its tail, lambs in a field, goldfish swimming, If his granddaughter had to stand in the corner again for discipline, at least she would have something to look at. A judgment was tempered by grace. So I'm going to read our text in Genesis 3 this morning. Our sermon theme, I think it's written in your bulletins there, and it's on the screen behind me. Our theme is that even amidst judgment and discipline, God's gracious provision of salvation is offered to sinners. Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24 is our text for this morning. So if you are able to stand, please stand with me as we honor the word of God. Genesis 3, verses 20 to 24. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, And clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Please be seated. So even amidst judgment and discipline, God graciously provides salvation for sinners. And the first thing that we want to look at from verse 20 is faith. You have a blank in your bulletin there. Faith is the word we want to put in. And as we saw in verse 20, at some point after the consequences were given by God, Adam, the man, named his wife. This naming indicates the authoritative position that God gave to the man, to the husband, in the marriage relationship. You remember from chapter 2, verse 19, where God previously assigned Adam to the task of giving names to the animals. Um, The husband is the leader in marriage, in the marriage relationship. He has the role of authority given by God. And again, this is not tyrannical authority. This is not dictatorial authority but it is one flesh godly leadership, which we have expanded on before. So we want to look at what, what did Adam name the woman? What did he name her? Well, actually, before we get to that, I want to ask another question. Were Adam and Eve saved? Hey, did they believe in God? Did they know God? And I'll say that the Bible doesn't tell us the answer to this question explicitly. Adam and Eve's spiritual condition is not directly spoken about in the rest of the Bible. For example, neither of them are mentioned in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are not saved. Looking at Genesis 3.20, this verse actually might seem a little bit out of place, like it came out of nowhere. But I think if we look carefully, it gives us at least a little information about Adam's faith. The name he gives to the woman is what? Eve. Names have significance in the Bible, as we know. God often gives names, new names, to people based on their meaning, based on what kind of character he wants them to have or that they will have. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, um, Jacob to Israel. In the New Testament, Simon to Peter. Saul to the Apostle Paul. Here, Adam calls the woman Eve. And the meaning of the word Eve, the name Eve, is living or life or even life giver. And it's interesting to note that Adam gave her this name before she bore any children. It's also interesting to note that Adam didn't give her a name meaning death. Genesis 3.20 doesn't say, Now the man called his wife the Grim Reaper. He didn't name her Lilith, which sounds like a nice, beautiful, flowery name, but Lilith actually means death. He didn't give her any of those. And it might be expected, following the curses and the consequences that God just pronounced upon them, painful labors both in childbirth and in relation to the husband, working ground the ground for survival, Ultimately, all this leading to death, returning to the dust, which God told them was going to happen. Names do have significance. And Adam giving her this name, because she was the mother of the living, it says, indicates his faith in this promise. One commentator writes this. Up to this point, the woman's name has been properly only Isha, woman. That's Isha in Hebrew which was Genesis 2, 23 and 24. 
Now, Adam gives her a new name, Eve, which is derived from the root of the word life. Both names are based on the divine actions that led to that point. Okay, woman is based on God's action in creating her from the man's rib. Eve is based on God's promise that she shall bear seed, end quote. So it's based on God's word that she's going to bear that ultimate seed that we talked about last Sunday, Genesis 3.15, it revealed to all of us that he's going to crush the enemy, Satan, and along with him, the curse of death. So I'm with the majority of biblical theologians who agree that Adam's naming of Eve here at least gives some indication of his faith in God. He believed, despite the curses pronounced and the consequences of sin and the disastrous corruption that followed when he and the woman disobeyed God. I believe his naming the the woman life, life giver, is his response of faith to God's promise to send a savior through the seed of the woman. Adam heard he knew of God's penalty loud and clear, death, but he also believed God's word that there would come forth from the woman, one who would bruise, crush, defeat the serpent's head. And so by faith, Adam named her Eve, the mother of all the living, before she conceived any children. Genesis is the book of beginnings, as we know. And like I've mentioned in the past, I like to say gospel beginnings. How did people get saved in the Old Testament? Pastor Bill actually posed that question a couple Sundays ago from John chapter 10. He rightly said that it was by faith in God that people were saved in the Old Testament times. Let's take a moment, just a moment, to further consider that question. Who and what did Old Testament people have faith in? What did they believe? Well, their salvation was based on the information that they had, what was revealed to them about their own sin and about the Messiah, Savior's future coming. Progressively, God revealed more and more as time went on. He never left them lacking in the information to be saved. God's story unfolds over millennia, right? Thousands of years. More details, more specifics were given to man about salvation, about who the Messiah was, what he was going to do on their behalf. This is what the main storyline of the Bible tells us. How redemption of sinful man is made possible. How sinful people can be made acceptable before a righteous and holy God. Consider just working backwards in Old Testament history. The time of Israel's exile, right? Assyria, Babylon, and even the return to the land. This is around 700s B.C. Assyria came 722 B.C. Babylon came 586 B.C. Went into the promised land, took it over, kicked the Israelites out. They returned as well. This all happened. And a few hundred years, the Bible tells us, uh, until 400 B.C., the last book of the Bible, uh, Old Testament is Malachi. And so major prophets, minor prophets, this era, did people in that time have enough information about the gospel to be saved? Yes? Yes, they did. How about the, the pre-exile era? How about the era of the kings? Okay, first and second Samuel, this is when Saul comes on the scene, right? Roughly 1,000 B.C. And David and Solomon... First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. This is the kingdom era, right? Divided kingdom. 
1000 BC to 722 BC, did people in that time frame have enough information about the Messiah to be saved? Yes, they did. How about in the era of the judges, which is pre-kingdom, right? Roughly 1350 to 1000 BC, 350 years of horrific, horrific sin and horrific times. It actually reminds us of today's time where everything's upside down and every person did what was right in their own eyes. Did those people have enough information about who the Messiah was to be saved? Yes, they did. How about the era of Moses, the book of Exodus, and Joshua, the conquest of the land, 1450 B.C. to about 1400 B.C.? Did the Israelites have enough information about Messiah? How about before Moses, slavery in Egypt, 400 years of slavery? Joseph gets there. How about before Joseph's time and his father's? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, we're rewinding all the way back to Genesis 12. 2100 B.C. is when Abraham shows up on the scene. All those years, 2100 to 1400, roughly 700 years, did those Old Testament fathers and people have enough information about Messiah to be saved? How about before Abraham, the prideful people who were building the Tower of Babel, roughly 2250 B.C.? Did they have enough information about Messiah and about their sin and about what he was going to do to be saved? Did the wicked people who were destroyed during the flood, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, catastrophe, during Noah's time, roughly 2950 B.C., did the generations of people before Noah in Genesis 5, did they have enough information about Messiah to be saved? Okay, we, my point is we can and should take this all the way back to Adam and Eve that early was information about the Messiah to come in the future available to them. Okay, the, the point is that salvation always came by faith in God and what he promised as the remedy for their sinful condition. A savior would come to save them, rescue them from their sins. And uh, we, we just have to look very briefly at Romans chapter 4. Can you turn there with me? Romans 4, just so we can see with our own eyes. And Romans, Paul doesn't cover the entirety of uh, Old Testament history like I just did in just a couple minutes, but he does pinpoint a few particular people. Romans chapter 4, which begins the justification portion of the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 3 is condemnation, 4 through 5 is justification. Praise God. And I'm just going to read it, Romans uh, chapter 4, 1 through 9. Paul says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What did he find? For if Abraham was justified, was declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? The scripture being Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was by faith. So righteousness was credited, imputed to him. He didn't deserve it or earn it. It was credited to him. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So there's Abraham, right? Look at verse 6. Just as, who else? David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
Verse 7, again, quoting the Old Testament. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Verse 9 to end, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? On the one who does works like circumcision or one who has nothing, who has done nothing? Verse 9 says, Not while circumcised, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Faith. Okay? So that's the story, folks. Salvation has always been by faith in the coming one and what he would do. Old Testament, New Testament. New Testament looks back. To quote uh, another pastor, he says, Salvation is now and always has been by faith in God's promise. Before Jesus Christ came into the world, a person's faith looked forward to the promised Savior. Looked forward. That's Old Testament saints, right? But since Christ, faith looks back to the Savior who came. But God always has granted salvation in response to a person's taking him at his word, having faith, believing in his promise. It has never been based on keeping the commandments or on balancing out a person's good works against his sins. Adam took God at his word. At that instant, he was delivered from the ultimate consequence of his sin, which was eternal separation from God, end quote. And hopefully that's clear. Hopefully that's convincing. And even more, I hope it is encouraging to all of us today. Sinners are justified by faith alone. And that is a gift of God we have to accept. All right. Continuing on that thought, God responds to Adam's faith by giving this graphic object lesson of salvation. Look at verse 21 again. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And clothe them, the Lord God, notice Yahweh Elohim, a personal, intimate, caring, with us God, but yet at the same time Elohim, almighty, all-powerful, omnipotent creator. This one made garments of skin and um, most likely this was the first sacrifice of an animal. And we don't know which animal, but these garments or tunics were given as clothes for Adam and Eve. And what a tender picture, first of all, of Almighty Creator God making clothes uh, for his wayward children. It says he clothed them. As the Old Testament frequently speaks of our Father, our Heavenly Father, who takes care of his sons and daughters, his precious children. He provides, he protects. He's a son, he's a shield. Part of this is physical protection, these tunics, hey, against the elements, against the cold, against the heat, against wind, etc. By the way, it's worth noting, as Wearsby mentions, that God wanted Adam and Eve to be covered. Hey, he approved of their sense of shame. It is always a sign of degeneration when a people reverse this and go back to nakedness and immodesty. A modest apparel is God's standard, 1 Timothy 2.9, end quote. Right? So God wanted them to be clothed and covered. Part of this was protection. Part of it was to cover nakedness and shame. And we understand that today. But beyond the physical covering of their nakedness, this is God's provision for their 
spiritual shame and sin and guilt before him. It points to the shame of the soul which resulted from sin. And so God provides a beautiful illustration of what he would do through sending his son, his son who would provide salvation for everyone who stands before him naked because of their sin. And this verse shows us at least four things. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his Genesis commentary points out four things. Uh, Number one is that man needs a covering for sin. A man needs a covering for his sin. Uh, You think about standing before a holy, righteous, pure, and perfect God with our, our sins exposed before him. It should be horrifying to us to think about that. Um, it would be less tolerable, tolerable for us to think about going to the White House for a job interview just completely buck naked. All of us need some sort of covering for our sin. second thing he points out is that man's attempts at covering himself are not adequate. What did Adam and Eve try to do? Cover themselves with some fig leaves, right? That's not going to do. Since the fall... Man has over and over and over and over, it's the story today, tried to cover themselves with their fig leaves of good works to make themselves presentable to God. And yet, God says, your righteous deeds are like filthy garments before my holy eyes. Right? Isaiah 64, 6. All the good works in the world cannot erase our sin. Our good intentions cannot atone for our sinfulness. And that's the problem, right? And that leads to the third thing that we can see in this verse. Only God can provide the covering we need for our sin. Only God can do it. And so he takes the initiative in properly covering us. He strips off those fig leaves. He strips off those self-righteousness and good intentions and quote-unquote good heart. He takes it all off and he clothes us with something else. Just like he clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. By the way, note again that Adam and Eve did nothing whatsoever. God did it all. Likewise, we cannot receive God's salvation as long as we try to offer him our, our deeds, our works, our attempts. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. We must let him provide everything which he has done in the sending and offering of the Savior. And this is the fourth and last thing here. The covering that God provided required the death of an innocent substitute. The covering that God required, that God provided requires the death of an innocent substitute. So some theologians think that Adam and Eve probably witnessed the slaughter of the animals that God used to get their skins to cover them. Um, if that's true, it must have been quite shocking to Adam and Eve. They never would have seen death until that time. And if they saw the animals, maybe they were lambs having their throats slit or writhing in the throes of death and blood. That probably would have given them a, a new awareness of the seriousness of sin, number one. But number two, also the amazing grace of God in providing for their sin. They learn that without the shedding of blood, there is no adequate covering for sin. 
But God would only accept the death of a, of a substitute. And this is what the sacrificial system, when you get to Exodus, right? Um, Moses' time. The sacrificial system of all the animals, that's what it was teaching Israel. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Leviticus 17:11. And you get to the New Testament, Hebrews 9:22, it reiterates that same truth. It says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 And of course, the blood of animals cannot take away permanently the sins of humans, right? It's going to take a human substitute. It's going to take a perfect human sacrifice. Only the blood of Christ, who is the Passover, who is the Lamb of God, only He can atone Only his sacrifice is sufficient. And it's to him that all of the animal sacrifices are pointing to. Even this very first one that we see in Genesis chapter 3. So there's a good summary from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says that God is a saving God. And the fact that he clothed Adam and Eve testifies to that. An animal was sacrificed to provide garments of skin. And later, all Israel's animal sacrifices would be part of God's provision to remedy the curse. A life for a life. The sinner shall die. Ezekiel 18.20, Romans 6.23. Yet, he will live if he places his faith in the Lord, who has provided the substitute. The skin with which God clothed Adam and Eve perpetually reminded them of God's provision. Similarly, in the fullness of time, God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. And on the basis of that atonement, he clothes believers in his righteousness. And we read that in Romans chapter 4, and it's also in Romans 3, 21 to 26. So this morning, dear ones, you are either standing before God, still clothed in fig leaves, You're still trying to get to heaven based on what you hope your good will outweigh your bad. Or you're clothed in the righteousness that God provides in the perfect substitute in Jesus Christ. The only way that you can hope to get to heaven, to to escape God's right and just wrath against you, is to accept the covering that God offers through the death of his one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And he calls you to repent and believe in him this morning. Now is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait for it. It could be gone. You could die any day, any moment. It will come upon you when you least expect it. You don't know the date of your death. Only God knows. So he calls you to turn from your sin and believe in his son, Jesus Christ, who he lovingly sent to you. So there's faith, there's grace, and lastly, there's mercy. Mercy in the blessed banishment is what 
we're calling it here in verses 22 to 24. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, once again speaks. He says, Behold, the man has become like one of us. By the way, another hint of the Trinity here, way back in Genesis 3. Man has become like one of us. Us being Father, Son, Spirit, conversing. And the triune God states the problem that man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. I think I've already said this, but the serpent, Satan, was half right. It was kind of a half truth that he told Eve they would become like God, knowing good and evil. They did gain knowledge of good and evil by eating from that tree. But the knowledge they gained was not like God's knowledge of good and evil, which was of holy omniscience, that is uniquely perfect and holy, the way that God knew of good and evil, not by experiencing it. Through their very act of disobedience to God, by doing what he commanded them not to do, that's how they learned, that's how they knew evil. They now knew it experientially, firsthand, in and through the act. So in a very limited way, they, like the triune God, now had knowledge of good and evil. They had become like God in the sense that he related good and evil to himself. Okay? And from God's position, actually that is good and right um, because he's the only perfect being who is the measure and standard of all things. Okay? But in man's case, it's not good. It's not right. It's actually sin. Because now, as some have put it, man knew evil knew evil like a cancer patient knows cancer, whereas God knew evil like the cancer surgeon knows cancer. So this is obviously not good for the man, knowing evil by participating in it, because now they're separated from God. They've violated the relationship. They no longer have perfect fellowship with him that they previously had. Now they are diso- uh, they're doomed to disobey again and again. You know why? Because it's in their nature now. It's part of them. It's in, their, it's in their very essence. It's in their blood, so to speak. Depravity. They are completely depraved inside and out. It's not just external. It's internal. So the problem is that if Adam and Eve stayed in the garden and eaten from the tree of life, they would have lived forever in their sinful bodies in their sinful state. And this is the implication of that unfinished sentence there in verse 22. He has become like one of us, knowing that even now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So what does God do? He evicts them from Eden. He banishes them from the garden. And as I've been saying, even this punishment was a divine blessing. It was mercy from God. And knowing that earthly life would be filled with sin and sorrow, tragedy and suffering, and toil and cursing, God graciously limited the number of years that men would live. And to live, to live forever here on earth in their sinful state would have been hell on earth. Um, endless agony for man, hey, God's compassion and God's mercy is shown to us in that he doesn't allow that. 
Verse 23, it says, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Okay, for those reasons, Yahweh Elohim sent him out of the garden. He expelled him, evicted him, exiled him, put him and drove him out of the paradise of Eden. And so the man's toil will begin. He will not cultivate and keep the Edenic conditions of before, but now he's going to go and try to cultivate and keep the land and the ground, the cursed ground outside of Eden. Paradise has been lost. Toilsome labor of survival begins. Okay, God, God would not allow man to keep eating from the tree of life. He would not have that option. God has mercifully removed him and the woman from the garden. And so we see that even in discipline, God is gracious. God is gracious. Verse 24 says, So he drove the man out. Blessed banishment. And it says that at the east of the Garden of Eden, what does he do? He puts cherubim, mighty, holy, warrior angels, and the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, I don't know if this was the cherubim holding uh, a sword or if this is a freestanding flaming sword, which is just uh, moving about in every single uh, possible direction so that it would slice and destroy anybody who tries to, to enter. But these are stationed by God. He put them there, both the angels and the sword. This is um, serious protection, in other words. Thou shalt not pass. Okay, epic lines. And so I don't know where this um, location is now. Uh, we, we don't know even exactly where the Garden of Eden was or what it looks like now, but it's definitely um, not going to be uh, allowed for man to be able to enter into it again until, and this is our conclusion here, okay, our conclusion, a couple things about the Garden of Eden. Um, this is a place called paradise, right? And it's a place that humans desire, even long to return to. We long for Paradise, we long for Eden, we long for eternity. The loss of that paradise, that heavenly place, um, is something that stays, stays with us. We have a faint hint or trace or longing or desire for it. Um, it's, it's part of who we are. We want that which is good and pure and eternal, despite the fall in our sinful nature. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God is the one who has placed and set eternity upon the heart of man. So we do long to return. And the good news, once again this morning, is that this paradise, this Eden, will be restored. Okay, our access is not going to be forever blocked. It's not forever blocked. And it's, it's, our return is based on our restored relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, the one who laid down his life for us. He's defeated the serpent, Satan. He's just he's doing his thing now, but God is in control. The victory is to be had. And this is the way God opens paradise. Revelation chapter two, verse seven says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit, the Holy Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat 
from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a precious, incredible, gracious promise that God gives. And then I mentioned Revelation 22 last week, but today I'm going to read it. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Verses 1 to 3, Apostle John writing here. says, Then he showed me, this angel showed me, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Jesus, right? And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3 says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face. Wow. So the Garden of Eden, that place of utter pleasure and delight, the place that we lost because of our sins, and we sinned in Adam, with Adam, Adam as our representative head, God in his mercy and grace will restore it to us on Christ's behalf. So Jesus, let me remind you that Jesus defined the gift of eternal life in John 17 as knowing you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. And the gospel of good news is that all who believe will be forgiven of every single one of their sins. And we will be escaping rightful judgment in hell from God. Uh, but the most important thing is that the curse of the cross, well, the curse has been reversed at the cross. And the main thing about that is that Sinners can be reconciled to God. We can be made from enemies at war with God to those who have peace and are friends with Almighty God, our Creator. No longer strangers, now only sons and daughters of God. Hey, the gift of the gospel is the giver himself. It's not just blessings in this life. It's not just blessings and joy and peace and pleasure and delight forever in heaven and all the new discoveries that are going to happen there. It's not even the gift of each other um, and knowing each other and being able to love and serve and worship together. Um, that's all unspeakable blessings and favor and grace and gifts from God. But the ultimate gift, as Jesus said, is knowing God personally being in the presence of God forever without any more sin, okay, being able to love Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be able to be in the presence and worship and serve and enjoy being with our triune God. And that's never, ever going to be boring, dear folks. That is the highlight of heaven. That is what we're looking forward to primarily. And with that, God gives us every single other blessing forever. We who once did not know him are now reconciled by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That word atone means to make amends. It means to make healing, to make peace, atonement, at one meant. Okay, to bring together, to make united, 
That's what happens to us when we come to know God. We are no longer separate from him, but we are now at one with him instead. So let's go away today encouraged by that good news once again, that even amidst consequences and curses and judgment and discipline, God, our gracious Heavenly Father, bestows upon us the gift of salvation and provision of salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ, to sinners. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for good news, which is always refreshing to our souls and Once again, God, um, the reminder that sometimes in our lives, uh, discipline and chastisement seems sorrowful and painful. But when we zoom out and look at the big picture and look at what happened to Adam and Eve and what happened to us through that, we have perspective. We have your perspective. And we see what is good and right. And we see what you've done for us. And we see that only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Can we know you and be with you? And we thank you, God, for your great mercy, which was shown to us at the cross. And that we have your word and your promises that you are going to consummate and bring all things to reconciliation. To the glory and praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you. And praise you in his strong name. Amen.